Okay. So, um, does anyone have any questions? I have one left over from last week. Go ahead, Sarah. Um, Yin and Yang is a wonderful, I find it, the most effective way to talk about men and women and male and female. Because there's nothing that anybody can take any offense in. And the yin-yang symbol is, the, is a circle that's divided into two equal paisleys, little, uh, little paisley-shaped things. And in the ideal one, one of them is black and one of them is white, and then there's a dot of the opposite color in each one. It's a classic symbol. And basically, it speaks of the fact that everything in creation is dual, and when that dual is in perfect balance, then the circle is complete. So the fact of men and women exists because the nature of creation has yin and yang in it. So yang is the male, yin is the female, from the point of view of masculine energy or feminine energy. But people in whatever gender body may be more yin or more yang, just depending on who they are. So after years of trying to talk about couples and relationships and facing the problem of same-gender couples, the problem of women not wanting to be stereotyped or men not wanting to be stereotyped, I happily retreated into yin and yang. And that has worked better than anything else that I ever found. So that's the essence of it. We have in this temple here in the back a yin-yang symbol, but because we have never, it, it, from, from the distance it just looks like a circle because we haven't actually been able to make the contrast strong enough. But there it is, it looks like a perfect circle and you don't even know until you get up close to it, that it's actually two halves made whole. And I believe when I was talking about it last week, I was talking about the Nayaswami vow. I will, I will never take a partner, or if I am married, I am complete in myself. And within myself, I, I, uh, I resolve all differences. I can't, the words escape me right at the moment. But I am complete in myself, that's the point. That I can equally... I mean, that's why Swami Kriyananda, or Master, people look at Master and say, oh, is a picture of Master somebody has on their desk. Oh, is that your mother? Is that your grandmother? And people often can't tell whether he's male or female because he was so perfectly balanced that the gender of his body was incidental to his consciousness. All right? Anyone else who has a question? We have microphones on both sides of the room today in the hope that it will make it all smoother, except we don't. Okay, there it is. Here it is, Chidambar. So I, I got a question in the email. Um, Marilyn explained more clearly what she was asking me last week. And the way she put it was, there seems to be a compulsion to be social, whether you're socializing with the same sex or the opposite sex, what drives us to seek the company of one another. Last week I was talking, because I was talking about uh, brahmacharya, I was talking about the a complementary magnetism and sexuality and all of that. But this takes the question a step back. You know, why, why aren't we content within ourselves? Um, well, we're not content within ourselves because we're not whole within ourselves, but let me take it from a different angle. I, I have this fragment of truth from the holy science, which I refer to every once in a while. Not that the holy science isn't full of more truth, but I have trouble... I have trouble understanding and explaining it, but this is the little fragment I know. Blessed are the pure in heart. And in fact, when we start on sutra number 231 and 232, and we're talking about the niyamas, the first of the niyamas is purity. And purity is when we have released 
from our consciousness everything that uh, takes us away from God and all that's left is our natural inclination to move toward God. So we know in our interactions with people that they are one of the very best teachers in terms of learning to expansion of heart. In the Gita commentary, um, Swamiji lists the four qualities, the four signs of true spiritual progress, and one of them is expansion of sympathy from the heart for other people. And that's one of the ways you can tell that you are progressing and doing the right thing spiritually is that your heart opens in sympathetic compassion to everyone around you. And uh, the, 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 what keeps us from opening in sympathetic compassion is our likes and dislikes, our expectations, our thought that other people should be serving us, and the, and the old good old what about me sort of question. Um, and we live with all those vrittis in the heart. And as, as Sri Yukteswar says, until we are very advanced, it's impossible for us to, to resolve and harmonize those vrittis without the stimulus of interaction with other people. And that's just the way God made the world, is that if we just sit by ourselves until we are more highly advanced and can generate energy purely by meditation, we have to be in the um, polishing machine of egos rubbing up against egos. So all of those delusions that we cling to can be exposed and then gradually overcome. So our own nature, because we are a river seeking the sea. We are an individual unit of consciousness seeking to merge with the whole. And um, the question was asked me once, um, when does the soul begin to seek God? And the perfect image is, when does a drop of water begin to seek its home in the ocean? As soon as the water is liberated from the ground, it begins, to, it begins its journey. And so it is with us. As soon as we are manifested, we begin our journey back. And there is something in us that's impelling us. It's, it's the power of God calling us back. And the the distance between us and seeing God is the degree to which we are holding in our hearts attachments and delusions that prevent us from merging. And so our soul compels us to want to be with other people, um, to, to want to be loved, to want to love. And then we go through all the um, alternating satisfaction and misery that that compulsion uh, creates in us uh, so that we can go on the gradual journey of self-awareness. And so it's a, God, it's a God-inspired compulsion is what we really have to understand. It's not within our control. Um, there does come a point 
where we have advanced sufficiently, Sri Yukteswar says, where we can just be hermits and the momentum of our spiritual search is so great and the resolution of the impurities of the heart is so advanced that we no longer need to, to interact. We're simply then able to finish the process in seclusion, like Ram Gopal Muzumdar or souls like that who just didn't have to really interact. He could spend, or St. Anthony of the Desert, you know, spent, what, 70, 80 years in virtual seclusion because it just wasn't needed for him anymore. He could finish the job without um, needing the rough edges. And in the meantime, you know, something like the Nayaswami vow, in any case, I am complete within myself. Even if one is compelled to interact and does not find oneself with the karmic freedom to be solitary, um, one can still work toward that sense of of self-sufficiency without it being a closing of the heart. And many people, um, understanding that ultimately they will be spiritually self-sufficient, try to become self-sufficient by simply closing uh, closing over those unresolved vrittis and just trying to be stern and impersonal. Um, but it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work in the sense you might be able to hold it for a lifetime. You might be able to hold it for many lifetimes. But if you've merely closed out those vrittis, closed over those vrittis and are not resolving them through devotion or resolving them through life experience, They'll just wait until they burst out, which they inevitably will. So, does that answer the question? It's a good question because we, if we, the more we understand why we're doing what we're doing, the more spiritually rich the experience can become. And in, in, uh, I'll go, I'll add this, which I've been saying lately because I just discovered it. Uh, once you get committed to the guru, as we're committed your relationship with your guru buzz is fundamental to your spiritual progress. That's what Swami wrote in The Path, that we must develop our relationship to God not only subjectively, inwardly, but also we have to spiritualize our relationship with the objective world and with one another. So uh, we've progressed, or I should say, well, progress is the right word, our Compulsion to interact has been refined to the point where we have at least a lot of interaction. Some of us may have the majority of our interaction is with guru bhais. So the refinement of the impurities of the heart is happening on a more subtle level. It's happening on a more subtle level because one, it takes very, very, very good karma to get to here. And it's also happening on a more subtle level because when we are interacting with guru bhais, there is a, a quality of self-awakening that becomes possible because of the profound trust that we have with each other, because of the wisdom that's reflected back to us, because of the capacity of understanding that others can offer you and the, the, just the genuine selfless love that they give to us that allows us to just keep progressing 
you know, through layers and layers of error and fear. Whereas in a normal worldly setting, you just don't have that kind of loyalty. And it's just a fact. People don't even expect that kind of loyalty and they, they're habituated to closing their heart in lots of situations or just relying on one or two people. I remember when we first founded the community, um, there was a man, uh, and he was working some in some area. I don't remember what his work was, but somewhere in the area. And he so enjoyed telling his office mates, oh yeah, I had Thanksgiving dinner with a hundred of my best friends. <laughs> because it was so exciting to him to have a hundred best friends. And he really did. And it was just so new. He'd never had more than one or two in his life. Oh, whew. All of a sudden, um, there was a, a Reader's Digest cartoon where, I think I just did it, the, um, a clergyman was giving a sermon and then he started to cough because he got a bug in his throat and then he announced, I'm pleased to announce that with great diff- diff- difficulty, a gnat has now entered the ministry. <laughs> I think some small creature just <laughs> became a light bearer. <laughs> <laughs> I've never thought I would have the opportunity to say that. Anand Ma was troubled once by a fly. Did you ever hear that story? It just kept, and and others wanted to shoo it away. She said, "No, this is a saint who reincarnated in this form so he could be close to this body. Just leave him be." Yeah, it just things happen on this planet. But this, I think, was just some little bug. All right, we were. Oh, I was talking about uh, our friend with his hundred friends. Yeah, uh, with his hundred friends. But but that you see how much opportunity that gives us to open our hearts, to love people unconditionally. You get to really practice because the environment is so much safer. And people will say, oh, well, you know, it's just a fake environment. You know, you need to be tough. But the fact of the matter is, when you're outside of this environment, you don't learn to open your heart and love. You just learn to wall yourself in and protect yourself. That's not spiritual progress. In this environment, we can really um, learn courage and openness. And then what we find is that, that you can then take that out. Because it, it's not merely that you do it because it's safe. It's because you learn where you're supported and then it becomes your own. That's what people don't understand. Is when you develop yourself inwardly, then that's yours. I remember... Many years ago, I went on this uh, lecture tour up to the Northwest, and uh, I had a, a slideshow of Ananda. That's how we did things in those days, and a little thing of slides. And I showed that thing over and over again in all those different settings. And now we show the Finding Happiness movie. We've progressed a lot. And every place I got, people would say, wow, that looks really beautiful, and that's quite a lifestyle, but like, how does it work in the real world? They'd say it like that. And I would just dutifully answer that question. I answered it for five weeks. And on the sixth week, maybe I was just tired or suddenly my brain cells started operating. I said, I said, Ananda is the real world. I said, in the atmosphere of Ananda, you do not get away with anything. You are without distractions. You are focused on your own reality. Your awareness has to come up and you have to really know what's going on. I said, this is the unreal world, television, drinking, overeating, carousing. 
That's not real. That's where you get to hide from everything. Ananda is where you have to face reality. Yes, duh. And then when you really face reality, even in one place, then you're equipped to face it everywhere. It's the same argument people would offer against our school. Well, you know, it's such a good atmosphere there. What's going to happen to them when they go out into the real world? I say, well, by that logic, you ought to beat your children every night so they'll be tough. And people do and have. You know, they mistreat them terribly because then they'll make them tough for the real world. But they don't function better. Everyone knows that. If you're encouraged and you're supported and you're reinforced and you're allowed to develop in a, in a positive, balanced way that has real foundation, then that is your strength. And they, sometimes people think if supportive means um, enabling you know, in the sense of uh, uh, codependency. That's not at all what we're talking about. It's people's minds, they can't imagine, literally. They can either imagine codependency in which you enable someone to indulge their weaknesses or you imagine, you know, the dog-eat-dog world. But the world that, as guru buys, we live in, people literally can't imagine it. How could they? It's just as simple as that except we had the good karma to remember it from a previous life and just noodle through this universe until we found it. You know, I often think of myself, I was 18 when I found the spiritual path and 22 when Swami came into my life. And I sort of feel like all the time before, I, I can remember being a, a, a skinny uh, adolescent at the parties and nobody ever asking me to dance and just kind of, standing against the wall, just watching everybody else, trying to pretend that I wanted to be where I was. You know, this, this horrible 13 and 14-year-old years. Yeah, it was really bad for two years then at a certain point. When I was 15, I discovered that I could be a bohemian, and after that, I didn't care. But 13 and 14 was when I thought I had to be like them. But that picture of myself is really how I think of myself almost until I came to Ananda. I was just standing against the wall, just watching them, the whole planet, just like, what are they doing? And really, is this what I'm going to have to do for the rest of my life? It was so, it was quiet, because I was just a child, but I just felt like I stood against the wall and watched. Because how could I engage? It was so confusing. Swamiji made the remark once that he sat at at the home of friends and relatives and so on, and, and listened to conversation, and he kept thinking he was missing the point because he, he couldn't figure out what the point was. Finally, it gradually dawned on them that there was no point. We were just trading opinions, and that was it. That was the conversation. Just back and forth and back and forth, and then it was over. Yeah, it was like, that's the quiet desperation that Thoreau talks about. But when you feel that way, God sends, God comes. That was basically when I said to Swami once, how do people stand it, sir? How do they live without the spiritual path, without Ananda? He says, when they really want it, God sends it. Just as simple as that. And if we think that people are not being responded to, it's because they haven't put out the call sufficiently because as soon as you do, God comes. And we all know that. But you see how far we have to be pushed because we've been profligate. We've, we've squandered the grace for a long time. So somebody squanders everything you give them. You don't just pour it back in just because someone said, oh yeah, maybe I'll do it this time. Mm-hmm. 
we'll see, won't we? And then there has to be some proving of determination, and then the divine response comes, always. Okay, any other thoughts or questions? Okay, we are at 2.31, and this is actually really what we were talking about. These accomplishments, being the yamas, which is restraining these qualities that interfere with our relationship with God, these accomplishments, being not limited to any time, place, or, or circumstance, are the great vows. These may be called vows, Swamiji says, or resolutions, but they are great because they presuppose actual fulfillment. I love the way he puts that. They're true for everyone. Anybody who wants even peace of mind, let alone those who want to find God, would do well to follow them. It's impossible to become perfect in any of them. Um, It is only when we have attained personal perfection that we really fulfill them. So he calls them these accomplishments, but it's a gradual, it's directional. I was very... um, I found this book, I mentioned to some of you when I was in Boston a couple of weeks ago, someone had this book which is called A World in Transition, which was published by Self-Realization Fellowship about 1998-99, just as we were crossing the millennium uh, and everybody thought the world was going to end. And it's not in print anymore. I don't know why they don't keep it in print. It's mostly taken from other books. Um, I don't know if there's anything in there that isn't published elsewhere. Maybe that's why they let it go. But it's an interesting collection because his master talking, Diamata talking, Ananda Moy, Achalananda, uh, excerpt, uh, transcripts of their talks. Just about, you know, world in crisis. Like, why are we having so much difficulty? Why is everything happening the way it is? Uh, someone was telling me today about the present reality in Iraq and Syria and the whatever half of the Muslim group is not in power, is really tearing apart the other half. And then, of course, the other half is gathering its forces to smash that half. And I was, you know, just hopelessly lamenting because you think of all these people who are trying to go about their lives. You think of, I mean, you just, I can't personalize it because it's just too heartbreaking. People in Egypt, people in Syria, people in Iraq who are just family folk trying to make a living, you know, setting up little stores and trying to put their kids through school, just everything that everybody's trying to do. And then you have these berserk people just running around making their lives unlivable. I remember when after 9-11, in the square in front of the city hall, the local ministers association had a big service. It was really, there were hundreds of people there. And one of the people they asked to speak was a, uh, a Muslim student from Lebanon or one of those countries, and he was a student at Stanford. And he stood up and spoke, and he said, you know, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but this is the essence of what he said. By the time I was 10, I'd been in five bomb attacks, and our house had been burned down twice. You know, it's just like, here we're all sitting, and he's now at Stanford, but wow, that's not the childhood that I had. And we just, you know, everyone was just silenced. We didn't know what to say. So hearing about that part of the world again, which is tearing each other, they're tearing each other to bits. Um, I remembered when Sant Kishavdas, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Sant Kishavdas, 
It might have been a different Swami, but I think that's who it was. He was a, a, a well-respected Indian teacher. He died maybe 15 years ago. And he came to lunch with Swami Kriyananda. They were friends. They knew each other. And I, I probably cooked, or at least I was present. And they were just talking about many things about the world. And Sankashavda started explaining this Indian uh, tradition with which he was familiar, speaking of the cataclysmic time that Master predicted. That's what they were talking about. And Sant Keshavda said, first, the evil people will fight each other. And they will, they will weaken the force of evil because they will battle each other. And then when they have sufficiently weakened themselves by, by their own efforts, then it will become a conflict between good and evil. And I've, I've seen how many of the conflicts are civil wars where two sides just start ripping each other to bits. And I'm not going to presume to say that this one is right and that one is right. Sometimes it looks more like good and evil, but often it isn't. It's just one terrible side against the other terrible side and everybody just behaving in ways that are un- unthinkable to people like us. Just, you know, we can't, literally can't imagine. But it's like um, demonic forces, demonic beings, um, this world needs to have violence and it needs to have violent events. And so people who um, need to do that sort of thing for their karmic progression um, got to incarnate with us. I said something to Swamiji once listening to some just really horrible music, which was 10 or 15 years ago. It doesn't even compare to what people are doing now just some car coming by and it just was so um, well Swami himself says when you listen to the music you see that the world is trying to explode that was the words he used it's trying to explode you can feel it in the music it's trying to the so called music it's trying to explode Um, somebody asked why Swami the question why teenagers in America rebel so much more than they do in other countries this is less true now because it's spreading around the world oh he said because of the music they listen to he said, because it's so ego-affirming, so self-will-affirming, so sensual, sensuality-affirming that it causes people just to break out and want what they want. You know, there's no refinement, there's no upliftment of consciousness, there's no self-sacrifice in the music. It's all, what can I get for myself and I don't care about you. And I said something to Swami just about how really awful the music was. And, um, and I made some comment like, you know, just regular people seem to be listening to it. They, the people don't look as horrible as the music. And, but he said to me, just like this, oh, he said, if you could see the consciousness. It was very chilling. I don't mean that every, every teenager who gets sucked into that for a time, but as Swamiji said, music is very important because it not only reflects consciousness, it also creates consciousness. I remember some movie I saw that involved, you know, child soldiers in some really brutal um, African, probably, conflict. And they literally walked around with these huge boom boxes with this really violent rap music. And they, you know, they carried their, their guns to the sound of that. And they actually made war to the sound of that. Amazing. And then people say, well, it's not proven yet. You know what the effect of all this is. 
I don't think we want to wait and find out. But that was interesting about Sanchi, what he said about evil against evil first. Then, then it'll be evil against good. Otherwise, it would be too strong. So I guess that's the good news. It's very, I mean, you just have to go back to, and this is part of our, uh, this is actually Santosh, contentment, which is the second of the Niyamas we're going to talk about. You really have to go back to what I have not emphasized in the last few weeks, but has been one of the most fabulous revelations of this book. It's not merely that we discipline ourselves to be calm in the face of outer circumstances. We come to the realization that outer circumstances are irrelevant to our state of consciousness. Just take it that extra step. What's going on outside of me is just has nothing to do with me. Master's fantastic statement. And wherever we might find ourselves, I was I was interested. I um, Rambach has been editing excerpts from my various talks, and then finding everything I've ever written anywhere, and publishing them sequentially and on a blog and so on. And one of the ones he found was about how to keep God close. And I t- just talked about practicing the presence of God. Some of you may read it, may have read it. And at the end I say, you know, if you practice this well enough, you can be in prison, you can be ill, you can be in most difficult circumstances, and you'll still feel fine. So someone commented, I loved your article, but the end is such a downer. <laughs> you know, why after that beautiful thing bring in stuff like that? I wrote back and I said, gee, I thought that was the good news. <laughs> you know, that no matter how tough circumstances get, you can always be in charge of your own inner reality. But of course, we don't want to believe it's going to happen to us. So we're going to make a life that's based on, and I'll, when I get to Santosh, I'll talk about that, based on getting it all perfect, and then I'm fine. Okay. Oh, I know what I wanted to say. That's why I went started with the world in transition, but didn't even talk about it. There's an, uh, an essay in there by Diamata, and since I'm often so unkind about her, I will say it was a very good essay. I liked it. And I have to also say it's the first one I've ever really read because I have been so unwilling um, to participate in her realities. So I read this one, and it was really quite good. And the point that she made that was just so obvious, she just said, divine law is divine law. And we can defy it all we want. Just like, you know, you can decide I'm going to be a drug dealer, and I'm going to get really rich, and I'm going to deal cocaine, or I'm going to do this, and or I'm going to uh, whatever. It, uh, I'm going to steal televisions from stores and smash windows and blackmail people and stuff like that. But it is against the law. And chances are, somehow, it's going to catch up with you. And if you manage to make it through this incarnation, then you'll be just falsely imprisoned in the next incarnation. But it's against the law, and you can't just get away with it. And so... All the scriptures, including Patanjali's Yamas and Niyamas, he's just explaining to us that this is how it works. And these are the attitudes that bring, just like Swami said, because they presuppose actual fulfillment. But we can just declare, no, I don't think so. Just like teenagers do, just like hippies did. (laughs) Oh, no, no, we'll just take drugs, it'll be fine. You know, we'll get enlightened through LSD. Look, you'll see, it'll work. We can just smoke marijuana every day. Just, it doesn't really affect you. It doesn't change your consciousness. It doesn't debilitate you in any way. 
We know it doesn't. That's the wisdom that you have. You know, we'll be utterly promiscuous and it'll be just fine. Whatever you might want to say. But it doesn't matter. You, if, the, if you put your finger in the, in the fire, your poor little fingers just burn up because the relationship between your fingers and fire is set by natural law. And that's just the way it is. You can declare that I'm going to live forever, that I'll never age, but it's set by natural law. I mean, sometimes you see these aging movie stars who have just, you know, put on this incredible face as if, as if they could. I remember seeing a picture of Wallace Simpson, you know, the woman for whom the king gave up his throne. And she was always such an elegant woman, but in the end, her mental faculties went away a little bit and she just wasn't able to maintain the facade. It's, it's just the way it is. No matter how much you cling, this will happen. And so, in this article, she would, Diamato was saying the obvious, which is, if you break the moral law, there simply will be consequences. And Master speaks of it in the first article in this book, which is really the most interesting so far. He just says, you know, uh, energy doesn't go away. And all of this disharmony that I was speaking of that's happening on the planet... It's, it's hovering in the atmosphere and it's disrupting the weather patterns and it's disrupt, disrupting the natural cycles and it's just creating a violent reaction from the natural world because people are breaking the natural law and just putting the whole thing out of kilter. And he, he really just talked about it. It just stays there. I mean, all the wars that we've been through and the genocides and the greed and the, just the, the hateful, hurtful, self-serving actions, it just hangs out there. And on a planetary basis, because, folks, we thought it was a good idea to incarnate in early Dwapara, next time we should talk about this before we do it and maybe talk to Swamiji and see if we can persuade him not to. But anyway, we decided to. This is what we get. We get a world in which it's, it's like this. Master said somewhere, he said... Lahiri was so fortunate because there were no wars during his incarnation. And Master said, and I've already had to live through three. Now, I mean, imagine, because Master's in everybody's consciousness, imagine what it feels like for a Master to go through all that the Jews went through in Germany, you know, or, or just everything. There's so many massacres, the Japanese moving into China and just massacring the Chinese, just so many things. Stalin all the horrible things, and Master had to feel all of that. You know, it's, it's because he could. And it, it's very, very sad for him, and he lamented that Lahiri got a better assignment. <laughs> but you just, where do you put information like that? I don't know what to think. So for us, it's, it's no small challenge, and I, I certainly, increasingly, it's, it's a strange thing. I'm not worried. Ever since we got our farm, I'm not worried. I used to worry because I felt responsible and I didn't really know how we would cope. Now I just have this wonderful picture of us walking over the hill and just hanging out together and uh, uh, telling stories by candlelight and doing kirtan until dawn. It sounds like a fabulous life. <laughs> Eating rice without salt, we'll be fine. <laughs> you know, we'll just be fine. But it just hurts your heart more and more. 
because it's, it's just people are, there's just so much struggle in this world. I mean, just the thought of those, what's going on in Syria and Egypt and, Af- and uh, Iraq. I always think of it just in terms of some little person who just finally got himself together to open his fruit stand, you know? And, and it's just, he's just right on the edge, but now he can't do it. Just the people who really want just their own small lives, but are not going to be given them. Of course, I can stand back and say that, but you still feel you live on both sides of it. You know, yes, it's his karma, but on the other side, it hurts. So, um, because you just can't break divine law, and collectively, karmically, on the planet, that's what we're doing. And so that's why we take the great vows, and we try to follow the yamas and the niyamas, because that's the only way that anything will ever come out right, individually or collectively. Any questions or thoughts about that? The microphone is not working. The, karma, the question is, what is the karma of all of us that we decided to come back at this time? Well, the question is, why did Master decide to come back at this time? Because often an avatar is responsible for transitioning a yuga. So, you know, he's, he's laying down, we, he, is laying down a pattern for centuries to come, just like Jesus did. Jesus laid down a pattern, and look how long we've lived on it. Krishna laid down a pattern, and look how long we've lived on it. Ramakrishna laid down a pattern that's just beginning to show. And, Ra- and Master laid down a pattern. And that pattern, Kriya, self-realization, the, all the thousands of characteristics and communities. So, you know, they had a job to do. I mean, think how many times Master came as general this, general that, warrior this, warrior that. And they all had to come and fight with him, and we probably came and fought with him. Could be worse. At least we're not, you know, on horseback slashing away at people. But who knows? That was probably fine. Yeah. I think uh, perhaps some of us uh, seize the moment. I mean, we're just a, uh, just barely a generation behind Master. It's all very fresh and uh, pretty clear in what he was talking about. We were blessed to be with a, a teacher who is a crystal clear channel. What an opportunity. Yeah, I think overall it's been a good deal. But I suggested to Swami next time we wait till a higher age. He didn't respond. But it's a good, it's a good challenge. I mean, if I were living, if I were still in the first 10 years of my spiritual life, which was the, the honeymoon years at Ananda Village, not, not the honeymoon, it was my childhood. I always say I grew up at Ananda. People kind of try to do the math. They can't quite make the math work. But it's, Ananda Village is my childhood home because that's where I had my spiritual childhood, which was just blissful. I had a, an absolutely blissful childhood. It was so great, and it really set the stage for the rest of my life. But it really was my childhood. So I think if I were in a higher age and just having nothing but my childhood, I'd just be still just frolicking through the strawberry fields. You know, just, so it's obvious. The challenge is just what we need. That's Niyama number two, if I ever get there tonight. Okay, any other questions or thoughts? All right. Um, Actually, it's a little bit early, but let's take a short break because I'm going to change sutras right now. So just just take a couple of minutes. Okay. Okay, friends. Any questions before we move on to the next sutra? All right. We're reading now Sutra 232. The niyamas, observances, consist of purity, contentment, austerity, 
which is defined here as accepting but not causing pain. Marvelous explanation. Self-study, which means introspection, and openness to higher truths. And now Swami goes through them one at a time. A purity, contentment, austerity, self-study, and openness to higher truths. Swami's retranslating some of these, so the retranslations are also really interesting. He says here that purity used to be translated as cleanliness, but both words will do. That is impure and unclean, which obscures the presence of God. Okay. And then he talks about, um, you know, just sheer physical cleanliness. But he also talks about shunning, shunning gross company, avoiding those who tell dirty jokes, avoiding people whose vocabulary is unkind, boastful, or coarse, and avoiding those whose subject of conversation is heavily laced with ego and with contempt for others. In other words, he's saying, you know, just as you don't want your physical body to be covered with mud, if you hang out in atmospheres in which people are slinging low thoughts and low consciousness all around you, you will become polluted with it, and you, you need to develop this attitude of, I'm, I'm, that's not my world, I'm not going to go there, and not, not think that we can just um, associate with wrong consciousness and not have it affect our hearts. So ev- anything, anything is impure which obscures our relationship with God, which I think is such a wonderful way to put it, because the relationship with God is always present, but when we have allowed other realities to crowd in, then that relationship is obscured. We become angry, we become jealous, we become envious, we become slothful. You no, know, we become attracted to things that we shouldn't be attracted to. Um, I'm, um, I've become so accustomed to the Ananda way of life. I, I was visiting my sister-in-law and her husband on the East Coast just a couple of days ago when I was there. And uh, they have beer in the refrigerator. It's just that's they're they're not heavy drinking people or anything like that. But they have beer in the refrigerator, and it reminded me, you know, we sometimes have near beer, which at first Swami forbade us to have that. At when Swami, when David was in charge of the market at Ananda Village, near beer first came out. It's a non-alcoholic beer, and a lot of people really liked it. So he started stocking it in the market, and Swami called it too near beer. <laughs> and he told us not to stock it. David stopped stocking at that point. But in, in the world that I live in of Ananda, nobody drinks. It's just not part of our story. Years ago, I was telling my Marcia and Ned, my sister-in-law and brother-in-law, I went to visit them, and I just, you know, just to have it, I opened the refrigerator and I saw a bottle of beer, and I just thought, you know, okay, oh, near beer, that's good. So I opened it up, and I poured it into a glass, and I drank about half or three-quarters of the glass, and I kept saying, wow, this is so much better than any that I've had anywhere. (laughs) Finally, I thought it was so good, I went to look at the bottle so that I could be sure and get some. (laughs) Only at that point did I realize, oh, this is really near beer. (laughs) But just the whole entire expectation of my heart was that just never crossed my mind. Never crossed my mind, because we just, I don't live in that world anymore, and I haven't in a very, very long time. And when you don't live in that world, when people behave in a gross way, it's really, really shocking. 
And you can just see how shocking he is. I remember this. This goes beyond shocking. This goes into blasphemy. When we were in Vienna, David and I were in Vienna, um, what would the context have been? Probably in 1986, after we were in India, before we had to move here. We took a long trip through Europe because we knew once we got here we were not going to get away again very soon. (laughs) So we took a long uh, trip together. And we um, were in Vienna and we wanted to hear the Vienna Boys Choir. You could either buy an expensive ticket and go to the concert or you could go to Mass at the church where they sang on Sunday morning. So this poor priest, my heart went out to him. You know, three quarters of the people in his church were just there to listen to the boys' choir and they couldn't care less about the sermon, the service, anything. He just had to carry on as if people cared when they were just waiting for the musical interludes. I mean, at least we had some sympathy for him, but it was, it was a hard assignment. But as we were waiting to go in, there was this couple, as it happened, from Australia. And they were really there for the music, and they were really scornful of the religion. And they had like a lifesaver or some kind of candy, and they were mocking the communion ritual with this piece of candy. Right. I was, I mean, I, I, I didn't say anything to them, and I should have. Because it was blasphemous. There was just no other word for it. It was so... Um, uh, wrong. You know, they didn't have to participate if they didn't want to, but to mock it like that. And it was actually, I, I watching them, because they were right near us, I thought, ah, blasphemy. This is really blasphemy. This just isn't casual. This is really, and the only word I can think of, of the devil. And the only thing, I've seen it twice, and I'll tell you the other circumstance was really something. In the course of the Bertolucci lawsuit, when the lawyer, who was later also SRF's lawyer, was representing her and put her on the stand, and they wanted to prove that she'd been brainwashed by her relationship with Ananda, and they had her speak in the most insulting, derogatory, and mocking terms about meditation, chanting, prayer, kriya, discipleship. It was, it was horrible. I actually wrote a letter to the SRF Board of Directors because I knew that their energy was supporting this and I wrote them, and have you ever seen blasphemy? I want to tell you I witnessed it and this is what you're supporting. Yeah, it was really, it was, it was, it was horrible. Which is why, on one hand, it doesn't make any difference to me that they won that lawsuit because, you know, whoa. Just And that was my reaction when the verdict came down against us, which was inevitable because of the corruption of the trial by the judge and so on. When, the, when, it, when it came down and the verdict went in favor of her and her cohorts, and I'm, I'm actually really proud of myself, my first response was, oh, no, oh, that's so terrible for them. Not only did they do this awful thing, but they won. And that will just perpetuate for much longer um, the the um, the delusion and 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 it will postpone the inevitable retribution for what they've done here. And I that was just my first thought. Oh, the poor dears, they've won. That's really awful for them. I mean, it was so by that point irrelevant. You know, we were just playing this game in the courtroom that had that had nothing 
to do with truth. Just nothing. It was very disheartening in terms of the legal system. It had nothing to do with truth. It was just some lila that Divine Mother was sending us through. But, man, I felt so badly for them. Because now, you know, you can't just break divine law like that and then just walk away from it sooner or later. You know, you see people in, in despicable, tough circumstances in this incarnation and, you know, everything happens for a reason. And you see people walking away with all of our money and driving us into bankruptcy and ruining our reputation and all of these things. And all you can think is, oh, those poor dears. What is going to become of them? You know, because, as I said earlier, divine realities are always true. You can't go against them. So this purity of heart also, and this is what I was saying, don't think that you can just mess around with these things. And be careful with your language. Be careful with everything. You just don't want to bathe in that kind of uh, darkness. Just keep yourself out of it. Keep yourself tidy, as someone once said <laughs> about these things. Um, so that's the observances. And then it, then it becomes spontaneous. You just become spontaneously good after a while. Any comments or questions about the first of the niyamas? I'm sort of being serious tonight. It's not really... I thought it would be funny, but I'm not funny tonight. <laughs> when I arrived, I thought it would be funny. It hasn't turned out that way. I never know. There's sort of a feeling sometimes. Sometimes it, I can tell, but I can't always. The second of the niyamas is contentment which is santosha. And it's described in the Mahabharata as the supreme virtue, for from it flow all the other virtues. But uh, contentment has to be understood in the right way, and Swami explains it here, because people tend to think of contentment as as, as just settling for what is. But what Swami writes here is that contentment, when rightly practiced, is not a passive virtue. It presupposes, under all circumstances, an energetic, bright attitude. And so what he's talking about, when he's talking about contentment, again, is not that you're settling and that you're just not, that you're dull, but that you don't rebel against circumstances. You respond to your circumstances, but you don't rebel against them. Now, you can respond and make a tremendous effort to completely change your circumstances. But that's not the same as rebelling against it. Rebelling against it is when you don't have faith that God is in charge of your life. And you believe that in some way you're being abused. You're not content with the conditions that God has put in front of you. I mean, we're content with the conditions that God has put in front of us, which may be to tunnel out of this prison and escape. It's not that we're content just to sit there and let something take its course. Because I mentioned the lawsuit, Swamiji fought so strong in that lawsuit. He was anything but passive. I mean, way, way, just no. He was so dynamic. He was ten times as dynamic as any of the rest of us. It took us a long time to catch up with what was really the right response to what was happening to us. But his contentment was... This is what God gives me to do. This is what I do. Right. But if it's what it was given to him, that was, that's, the, that's the level of contentment. You're never re- revolting against God. I, I've shared with you, but I remember when Swami was having just incredible health problems, you know, kidney failure and conjunctive heart failure and uh, compression fractures in his spine and just all kinds of stuff. And then 
you know, something went right, as I, I think it was like he didn't have any cavities. <laughs> and I said, well, thank the Lord for little favors. And he just was so stern with me. I mean, he was really stern with me. I thank God for everything he gives me, he said. He wouldn't even, he wouldn't even take it just as a lighthearted joke. It was like, I never, I don't think like that. Remember the story of Master and Diamata, I believe, where Master was struggling. I think he was taking a lot of karma in his body. And Dias said, why does Divine Mother treat you that this way? And Master said, don't ever speak against Divine Mother. Because they could feel it. See, Swamiji could feel it in my consciousness, even though I was just being silly. He could feel that there's a real aberration there and don't ever go there. That was sort of like that couple, if I had reprimanded them for mocking the communion, they would have just, they didn't, they didn't feel it because their vibration was so gross that they just didn't feel what they were doing. But mine is more refined after all these years of spiritual practice, so I could feel it. And in that courtroom, Anne-Marie Bertolucci and that terrible lawyer, they just couldn't feel it. They just could do all those things, and they couldn't feel what they were doing. But we could all feel it, and it was horrifying. It was really horrifying. And so even with with Swami, he could feel it. He could feel that I was pushing him someplace he was not going to go like that. So our contentment is dynamic contentment. It's, It's a contented, dynamic acceptance of whatever it is that we're asked to do. And oftentimes what we're asked to do is to move heaven and earth and make something different. This is how life is. This is when Swamiji, uh, in the early years of, of raising the money for Ananda, and he tells the story often of when he was working so hard just to stay even, and somebody put a lien on the property over a debt that he was paying off, and he was he was shaking. He was so intent about it, and a friend of his said, oh, just come home and we'll have a cup of tea and you'll feel so much better. Swami's response was, I don't care how I feel. I want to know what I'm going to do about this. And it's, you wouldn't call that contentment, but in a very real sense it was. God has given me this problem and I'm going to solve it. I'm not going to go hide from it and try to just, you know, drown my sorrows in a cup of tea. I'm going to solve it because it's been given to me to solve and I have to keep going. And that's why it says this is the greatest of all virtues because it's accepting the will of God and responding to it without losing any energy by thinking of an alternative. I, uh, and that's why he says it's a true, true contentment is an act of divine faith. Uh, I... Uh, recently, Jyotish or Devi, in one of their Touch of Light uh, mailings that they send out every week, they were quoting, I believe, Keshava, who's lived in India for 10 years and is, is very um, comfortably settled there. He's a Canadian by birth, so it wasn't like it was his natural um, culture. But when they asked him, how do you live so comfortably here? He said, I never make comparisons. I never stop and think that things ought to be other than they are. This is, the, this is how it is. You know, the bureaucracy is like this. The traffic is like this. The air quality is like this. Whatever it is, it just is. And so wh- why would I think about anything else? But you see how subtle that is? Because when something happens to us, often the very first thing we do is to wish it were otherwise. 
And think how much energy is lost. And also, what does that mean? You know, is God in charge or not? Has God re- is, God really, is God really holding me in the palm of, my, of his hand and taking me exactly where he wants me to be? Or is he not? And there's no middle ground on that. I mean, we're, we are directional in our ability to embrace it. But philosophically and in truth, there's nothing in the middle. He either is or he isn't. And it's 100%. It has to be. So why would we ever thank the Lord for little favors? We just have to thank the Lord for everything. And we work, you said we have to work on it all the time. It's not like it's, um, I mean, this is, this is the real, this is the Olympics of right consciousness. You know, this is not kindergarten. This is the real thing. And that's what Patanjali is. He's the real thing. This is how you solve this problem. This isn't a steps toward gradual awakening. This is where you end up. We might as well just start there. Um, and then he talks about how you know, some people think that contentment is when we get it all in order. People will say, yes, I have a good job and a nice home and a planned retirement, and my children are all doing well. I feel content. And Swami just says that's to miss the point entirely. That was the conversation I had with that woman. Why is the end of your article such a downer? Well, to me, if, if what you're doing can't hold you in the hard times, it's, it's not worth it. Because then you are always afraid. And I, I, I know I was born at a certain level of experience in this lifetime, but I, I was plenty nervous for a lot of my life. My totem was the squirrel. <laughs> you know, it's just... And I never took, I never drank caffeine. People would offer me coffee and I would just say, you don't want me caffeinated. Just think about it for a minute, you know. <laughs> but uh, I, I compared to all the anxiety that I can kind of karmically remember where you're really scared all the time because there's just you. There's no God. You don't know what's going to happen. I, it's unthinkable. But of course, having lived through all of that, remember I was sharing with you the other Sunday when I was telling you that horrific past lifetime that I dreamt in which everything that I loved was taken away from me and I ended up in a monastery. That's my only absolute certain past life because I dreamt it, re-dreamt it. And in the dream, it had just been a horrific cycle, but I was in this monastery and I wouldn't have gotten to that monastery, that convent, because I was a woman. I wouldn't have gotten to it without all that stuff happening. And the dream started at the end, at the end of the life. It started with my being in the convent. And just despite all that I had been through, of, uh, loss, humiliation, death, trauma, I was just this very happy nun. And I even had to say, don't worry about me. It was all fine because here I am. And then I relived all the traumas that got me there. But if, if everything is taken away and you realize you never had it anyway, I was thinking about the, the, the euphemism, um, I've lost my husband or I lost my wife, meaning that they died. And I've often repeated uh, what Jacqueline said after Vasudeva died, and people would say, I'm so sorry you lost your husband. She would, she would say, I haven't 
lost him. You know, I know just where he is. He's not lost. He's just gone from here. But I was also thinking just about what a terrible euphemism that really is. Because if you lost it, that means you owned it. You lose your wallet, you lose your credit card. It means you owned it. And just the the very idea that you own your husband or owned your children, and then you lose it. You You never had it in that sense. It was there, and you moved along together, and now you're separated. Now one of you is in physical form and the other one is not. So definitely, as someone said to me when after her husband died, the relationship has changed. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, it's just gone. It's the way it is, and it's harder. As she said, I was accustomed to being able to access him and talk to him very easily, and now it's more difficult. But it's not lost because it was never yours. And so everything that we think about, it, it just, it's just all that putting forward of mine, mine, mine. This is in the context of, it's not about outward conditions. It's whatever God sends is what I want to have. Richard Wormbrand, Worm, Wormbrand in his uh, book, Tortured for Christ, which is, whoa, that's really not a title that everyone wants to read, but it's a great book, absolutely great book. He talks about being tortured for Christ, being imprisoned by the communist regime in Romania, and spending many, many, many years in, you know, conditions that just are so shocking you can hardly even consider it. Well, you can't consider it except that he lived through it. But he talked specifically about his experience of the will of God. You know, he, he maintained his, his spiritual focus. He never gave it up the whole time. And he talked about some particular torture that he was being subjected to, which is you know, sleep deprivation and, you know, you read about these things and, wow, you think about the people who are imposing them and it's pretty scary for everybody. How can, how can anybody be so cut off from their own divine source as to inflict this kind of pain on others? I mean, they, whatever they're doing to you is nothing compared to what they're doing to themselves. But he was being deprived of sleep and forced to walk around his cell literally for hours and hours, in a state of, you know, near-starved exhaustion. And he talked about how he started out feeling that this was being imposed upon him, you know. And he, he was beyond hating his guards, but nonetheless, he kept comparing what was happening in that moment to something other that he could imagine that would be better. But then he began to just think, you know, if this is being asked of me, Jesus must be asking it of me. Because how could it be happening if Jesus were not asking it of me? And then all of a sudden, instead of this sadistic guard making him do something, he was literally walking around his cell in the company of Jesus. And he was just so happy, blissful, to be walking around his cell in the company of Jesus. Exactly the same experience just turned into something completely else. And in that whole book, it's just breathtaking because he's in, you know, unbelievably difficult conditions. And just time after time, by, actually, by the practice of contentment, he just turns it by deep faith in God. He just keeps turning it and keeps turning it. And so, finally, there's just nothing they can do to him. 
He's in the most impossible, difficult, you know, everyone's nightmare. And there's nothing they can do to him. Because he's in the presence of God no matter what his external conditions are. Now, again, I think that's the good news. I don't think that's a downer. But that is a challenge. So we have to practice when it's easier. And by comparison, everything is easier. Except if you're pushed to your limit, it's your limit. No, regardless. So even though it might not look as dramatic as Richard Wormbrand, it could be the edge of what we're able to do. And that's the only thing that matters whenever we hit that breaking point, that we keep turning it in the right direction. All right, are there any questions or thoughts? All right. Thank you all. God bless you. Okay.